audience. Um, thanks for tuning back into our podcast. So today we've had a change of venue, and rather than being at the New World Brewery, we're currently at the Fly Bar. And my guest this evening is a very lovely lady called Mel Rogers. Hey, Mel, how are you doing? Hi, very well. Mel has been recently doctored, so is now Dr. Mel Rogers. Congratulations on getting your PhD. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's a good feeling. On that subject, um, I know a lot of people, when they hear the word doctor, they instantly think of medical doctor. And so we kind of have to explain ourselves as PhDs. So can you just tell us a little bit about what your PhD entailed? So my PhD, I work on volcano seismology. Um, So what that entails is a combination of field research and a combination of lab work and analysis and then a lot of interpretation that, that goes on. But the American PhDs are actually a little bit different to UK PhDs. Um, they're generally a little bit longer. You generally actually take classes, unlike the UK system. And you also often teach. So part of the responsibilities is either as a, a teaching assistant or you can sometimes take classes, actually teach um, full-on introductory geology classes. So they're a little bit different to the UK ones. So basically, as PhDs, we're automatically launched into the world of research and we basically do what we're going to do from there on. Yeah, we very much, uh, as soon as you arrive, it's right, figure out what it is you're going to do. Um, and I, I was lucky in that when I came to, the, to USF, I already had a, a very good advisor who I wanted to work with and we already had a project planned. So um, I think a lot of people who do PhDs in the US sort of turn up to grad school and then sort of try and find a project Whereas I came in with a very specific, we are working on this volcano, doing this, right, go. And uh, right from the outset, I was very, it was very much left up to me to kind of guide my entire PhD. Very cool. So I know that volcanologists study volcanoes, and I know that seismologists study earthquakes. So, is a volcano seismologist what it says on the tin? It is, and it's, it's funny. We inhabit this kind of strange space between volcanologists and seismologists um, in that we actually study the earthquakes that are generated by volcanoes. So, all an earthquake is really is a shaking of the ground. Um, and most people, when they think of an earthquake, think of these big tectonic earthquakes, so massive faults that are, that are slipping. But volcanoes, because there's a lot of stresses involved in a volcano, there's a lot of magma that's moving, they, they break rocks, they generate signals that actually move the ground. So by studying those, we can basically use them to, to better understand the processes that are happening inside the volcano. And you have a particular volcano that you go to on a regular basis. Tell us a bit more about that. I do. I, I work on a volcano in Nicaragua. It's called Tilica. And it's, it's a very interesting volcano because um, often before a volcanic eruption, you, you see an increase in volcanic earthquakes. And usually that's seen as a sign of impending eruption. Uh, it's usually one of the, the signals for what we look for, is this volcano going to erupt? But when they installed the first seismometer at Tulika in 1993, the seismicity was so high that they thought, is this about to erupt? But it turns out that that's its kind of normal behaviour. So it's a little bit like a volcano that cries wolf the whole time. The problem is, if this is normal behaviour, 
what does it do before it erupts? And that's the problem that I've been trying to solve. And so what have you found as far as that goes? So actually, we were, we were lucky enough. Uh, we installed a network of seismometers on Talika in 2010. And Talika was kind enough to erupt for us in 2011. So we were able to really study what happened before the eruption. And what we've, what we've noticed is that instead of a, sort of an increase in seismicity before an eruption, Talika actually switches off. So seismicity drops. It actually, the whole system kind of seals, uh, if you will. And then we see the eruption happening. So it kind of does everything a bit backwards. As part of your research, do you go and speak to the locals at all? Are there people that live nearby? Yeah, there's people who live very, very close to the, the actual active vent. There's a, there's a farm uh, sort of the end of the road, where generally where we park the trucks before we start the hike. So there's a, a family who live up there. And there's a lot of farms who live who are very much on the flanks of the volcano. And they're a very good resource for asking, so what's the volcano been up to? Because they can often tell us, yeah, it's been gas degassing recently or we saw an explosion yesterday. And so, we, yeah, we do talk to the locals a lot. And, of course, they always want to know, so when's it going to erupt? And, yeah, of course, that's not an easy question to, to answer. Yeah, I can believe that. But do you ever wonder why people continue to live in these areas? No, um, it's, it's, it's one of these problems that exist around volcanic regions and it's something that I think a lot of people who don't work in, well, around volcanoes don't often understand, that a lot of people have no choice. They live on a volcano because that's the farm that they inherited or that's where they live. And many of these communities, are they can't afford to, to just up and move and, and live somewhere else. Um, but the other reason a lot of people live in volcanoes is the ground is exceptionally fertile. So the crops that you grow in volcanic regions, it's immensely productive. So a lot of these people don't even want to leave. Um, they absolutely don't want to, to up and leave, even if they have the, the funds and the availability to do that. It's, it's too nice of an area for them. You've also been to a conference not too long ago? Uh, the conferences are, are fantastic opportunities to, to meet a lot of the people that you've only ever read their work. And also to sort of talk about your ideas and get feedback. Um, so I presented a poster at the conference I was at in Japan. And you often get a lot of people coming up to your poster and you're able to explain your research to some of the sort of eminent names in the field and you get some fantastic feedback from them. Um, and you also you form a lot of very important collaborations at conferences. So future work with people is often formed at a conference. Okay, so before we go on, how did volcanoes form in the first place? Ooh, okay. Um, there are many ways. So there are many different ways a volcano can come, come about. So you can't really discuss volcanoes without talking a little bit about plate tectonics. So the surface of the Earth is split up into these chunks of, of plate, basically, chunks of crust and a little bit of mantle that move around on the surface of the Earth. And most volcanoes are formed at the boundaries of those plates. Um, there's two sort of main ways that we, we see volcanoes forming. The first, and this is probably the most uh, common type of eruptions that we see on land are formed at something called a subduction zone. So what happens at a subduction zone is that you have continental plate, so continental lithosphere, and oceanic lithosphere, which is denser and rides a little bit lower than the continental crust. As they collide, 
the oceanic crust is pushed down, it, it subducts beneath the continental crust. And in doing that, it takes down sediment that's entrained in that top of that plate. And just like in, in a winter's day, not that anyone here in Tampa would know this, but on a winter's day, if you add salt to the ice, you're going to melt it. So a little bit like that, if you add water to the hot mantle rocks beneath the continental crust, you'll melt them. And that generates melt, molten rock, which then wants to rise. So that rises through the crust and erupts as a volcano. The other type of uh, volcanoes that we see are something called a mid-ocean ridge. So this is where two oceanic plates are actually pulling, or actually moving apart. And in the moving apart, sort of this rifting process, you get an upwelling of material and you get volcanoes formed in that way. The, the sort of third type of volcano that we see is a volcano that forms at a hot spot. So you have a sort of a localized upwelling of a, a plume of very hot mantle material and as it rises it generates melt and that melt then erupts um, for example Hawaii and possibly Yellowstone are examples of those. So your volcano in Nicaragua which one of those categories does it fall into? The volcano that I study is a part of a subduction zone so in this area the the Cocos plate is actually subducting beneath the Caribbean plate and that's what's forming the the, the magma that's we see then at the surface at Talika. So it's a subduction zone volcano. Okay, very cool. Um, I'm going to start off with a, the infuriating questions from Philip first. So this is about the, the Icelandic volcano, which I refuse to pronounce, but if people were here, they would see that Mel has this on her T-shirt right now. How do you say it? So uh, I actually cornered a poor girl in a bar in Reykjavik and her, bought her beer until she taught me how to pronounce this volcano and it's pronounced <laughs> try saying that three times fast <laughs> so the question was that for anybody who remembers back to a few years ago this thing erupted and caused huge amounts of chaos so how common are volcan volcanic events with global consequences so the consequences of that eruption was that aircraft were grounded across pretty much all of Western Europe for, I think, about five to six days. And a lot of people think, oh, it must have been this massive eruption that stopped air travel for a long time. But the, the 2010 eruption of Eifjertlikert was a really, really small eruption. Uh, there was a few reasons why Eifjertlikert was so devastating to air traffic. It was a combination of the wind direction. It was a combination of the fact that this volcano had erupted under a glacier, which fragmented the ash into much finer particles than if it had been a subaerial rather than a subglacial eruption. The fact is that even small eruptions like this can have massive consequences. But having said that, there are larger eruptions that have occurred in our lifetimes that have had next to no massive global consequences. Actually, this question we've had from a couple of people, and one of them includes Steph from Australia, and she asks, is Naples likely to be destroyed in our lifetime? Because several people have heard these stories 
saying that Neapolitans should devise escape strategies without delay as Vesuvius is due for its largest eruption yet. And of course, by Neapolitans, we're talking about the ones in Italy. So the ones in Florida, I think you're fairly safe from volcanic eruptions. (laughs) Well, you can never say that a volcano like that, like Vesuvius, is not going to erupt in our lifetime because, yes, it, it could. I think it's unlikely to erupt, you know, tomorrow because I think we would see signs of that but you know we could be entirely wrong but it's possible yes Um, but there are many many cities like Naples that exist very very close to very dangerous volcanic regions Mexico City is another fantastic example it's right next to a very active volcano and it's also in a volcanic field of its own Um, Manila is another example of a big city that's very close to volcanic regions. And this is the problem with a lot of big cities, is they're extremely close to very large and very dangerous volcanoes. So are there potentially people who are planning just exit strategies for people? Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. When you're talking about a volcano, you don't just have to think about the volcano itself and what's the size of the eruption, but you have to think about what is the population there, what's the population at risk. So this is the difference between a risk and a hazard. So risk involves looking at what are the effects and the consequences for people around that volcano. And this is why cities like Naples have such a high risk. So how does a volcano die? Can a volcano die? Absolutely, absolutely. There are all kinds of dead volcanoes all over the place. Um, Edinburgh, for example, is Arthur's seat, is a volcanic plug. Uh, Devil's, was it Devil's Tower in Wyoming is the inside of a volcano that's been eroded and we see the actual internal or, you know, organs as such of that volcano. So absolutely, volcanoes die. And that's a very interesting question um, because we don't ever really know that a volcano has died until it doesn't erupt anymore. So we have a lot of volcanoes that are active but haven't erupted in a long time. And this is a very interesting definition because what's the definition of an active volcano and that's not something that's entirely clear because a volcano may have erupted 2,000 years ago it's certainly not dead it may be it may never erupt again but we're not going to know that until a very very long time and one one of the ways that a volcano would would die is if its source of magma has basically switched off So magma is what's basically driving most, not all, but most volcanic eruptions are driven by input of fresh new molten rock, basically. And if that supply is switched off, so for example, if the plates, we talked about plate tectonics just a second ago, and if those those plate boundaries are moved, if they shift, which they do, they move over time, and you effectively remove your source of magma, that's one way that a volcano may, may die. So if the source actually moves... Quite often you can get a sort of a a leapfrog and a a new volcano will form somewhere else. Um, So in that way you get the the sort of evolution of of a volcano. For example, if you had a subduction zone that was your source, um, subduction, the melt is generally generally formed at a very specific depth uh, on on the subducting plate. And so if that plate is moving, which it does, it, it sort of falls back, it rolls back, that then is going to move. And on the overlying plate, you're going to see a migration of that volcano. And you actually see this in volcanic chains, that you often see a long line of volcanoes that are getting progressively younger towards the trench. So would that be, uh, is Costa Rica an example of that kind of 
volcanic chain? Or? It does. There is a subduction zone is at Costa Rica. It's actually the same volcanic chain as the volcano that I study in Nicaragua. Um, so it's the Central American volcanic front, and that's it's happening there that volcanoes are are moving. But it's a very it's a very topical question of you know how does a volcano switch off? Yeah, so this is more of a, a social question than a science question. But are there popular volcanoes that all researchers would like to study, and do people get preferential treatment as to which ones they get to study? So I think you could get a different answer from every single person you talk to. Uh, there are some volcanoes that are consistently erupting, and we kind of call these our laboratory volcanoes. For example, Stromboli in Italy is just constantly erupting. And that's a fantastic one if you want to put out instruments and test something. But it's very well studied and we, we know a lot about it. Of course, we don't know everything about it. But I don't think every single person has um, th- the same volcano because every researcher in volcanology has a different interest. So one volcano may be of interest to one person and a different volcano for an entirely different reason, is of interest to another. But as for who gets to work on volcanoes, that can also be quite a a political uh, challenge because most volcano observatories are run by local government organisations and generally to get to work with them, you need some kind of agreement, some kind of uh, understanding of what you're going to do with that data. So that can be quite tricky and often makes or breaks uh, proposals and funding and it also comes down to, to money. Can you get funding to do your research? Do you have a dream volcano you'd like to work on? Oh, gosh. Actually, there's, there's a lot. Um, I I'm, actually I'm would quite like to work on, and I, I may hopefully in the future get to work on Tungurawa in Ecuador. It's actually erupting right now, and uh, it produces some of the loudest volcanic explosions that have been recorded anywhere on the planet. Um, and we can actually, we can actually listen to the... the, the acoustic sound that a volcano makes when it explodes and this is actually one of the loudest volcanoes in the world so that's that's a pretty cool one when you're adding your what did you call them the meters for measuring seismometers how do you do that oh um many many ways so we our network um we we built concrete bunkers so these little concrete huts some of them existed already um we built two of these things and we install the seismometer, we put it directly on the, the concrete floor of these huts, and then we have solar panels on the roof of these huts. Um, we have battery packs inside. We install it, close the door, walk away. So these huts are built around the base of the volcano? These huts are built at varying distances from the volcano and at varying sort of angles, so we, we have complete coverage of the volcano. But if you're not lucky enough to have these concrete huts, and if you're only deploying temporary deployment or if you're somewhere where security is not an issue then what a lot of people do is they will dig a hole in the ground they'll pack down the ground you'll place the seismometer directly into that hole you'll generally then get a bucket turn it upside down put it over the seismometer and then fill in all the soil and put your solar panel on top Okay, so the slightly, slightly more low-tech option. Yes, and not as secure because people come along and steal your solar panels or your batteries or your instrument. So how important do you think past and future record-keeping will be for seismic activity in this era of fracking? So for those who don't know, fracking is a, a, a process that um, oil and gas companies are using to extract hydrocarbons from, from reservoirs where they actually fracture 
the rock um, to extract more oil or more gas. And this, it's a kind of interesting question because we have seen an increase in seismicity over you know, the last decade in, in America, but this isn't necessarily due to fracking and we don't really know why this is happening. It could also, it could be that we're seeing an improvement in monitoring. So the more seismometers you put out, the better quality of instrumentation, the more earthquakes you're going to record. It's like having a, you know, a better microphone, you're going to hear more noise. Um, the other thing that could be contributing to this is that there's been a massive um, broadband array of seismometers. I think a few hundred have been installed, and it's been slowly working its way across the U.S. It's actually in Florida right now, and it's a massive project uh, consisting of hundreds of seismometers. And those, of course, is an improved network. It could also be that there's an increase in seismicity. We don't know, and it's not a question that has actually been answered yet. Well, thank you very much for coming to speak to us. It's been absolutely enlightening. For people who don't know, Mel, having finished her studies, is going to leave us to the prestigious heights of Oxford in the UK. So the very best of luck to you there. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to talk to you and some fascinating questions. Thank you. Likewise. to Matthew Halpin to doing the music for this particular podcast and remember go to our social sites check up on what we're doing we have regular happenings and for anyone who might want to become involved from the science world in our annual event make sure you drop us a line email us at contact at pintofscience.us working in Mexico. I was working on the volcan de Colima and when I first turned up there, Colima had been exploding sort of every day, more or less like clockwork. But the day I showed up, it stopped exploding. Now, I was really gutted because I really want to see this thing explode. The reason it had stopped exploding, as we found out a few weeks later, was that a lava dome had formed in the crater of this volcano, effectively plugging, stopping those explosions. So what I mean by a lava dome, because I think most people, when I talk about lava, imagine sort of running rivers of molten rock, a bit like Mount Doom from Lord of the Rings. But this volcano erupts a very sticky kind of lava. It's almost like toothpaste. So it actually formed this sort of plug in the top. And when we realised that it was actually now extruding lava rather than just exploding gas and ash... This was really exciting, so we thought, fantastic, let's go pack our bags, off to the field we went. And we wanted to try and get a sample of this lava dome. Blocks of this lava dome were breaking off and rolling down the sides of the volcano. So we waited um, to try and catch, see if a big enough block broke off such that we could actually get a sample of it. Eventually one like block the size of a house kind of broke off, barreled its way down the side of the volcano, we watched it and we thought, yeah, that's low enough for us to go in and take a sample. So ran out of our camp, 
got up to the volcano, got to the, to the base of the volcano, and the, the block that had made it down, it was about the size of a, a small car. And so my colleague kept a watch out for any other boulders coming down. I ran up to the boulder, and it was fantastic. It had this huge crack through the middle. It was still glowing red inside. It was just fantastic. And, of course, in the excitement of, let's go get this boulder... I'd forgotten to bring my rock hammer. I'd forgotten to bring my heat-proof gloves. So I just started tearing chunks of this thing off with my hands. <laughs> I realised it was a bit hot. And then I pulled out my plastic sample bag, <laughs> put my sample in. Of course, it melted straight through and landed on my feet. <laughs> so I took off my, my sweater, wrapped the rocks in that, and then we, we legged it back to camp. You've just been listening to a Two Scientists podcast. Now, if you'd like to keep up with our new releases, you can follow us on Twitter at 2SCIS, Facebook or Google Plus using the handle 2Scientists, or for the more old school among you, you can check out our website at 2Scientists.org. Thanks for tuning in. Magma. Magma. That's a bit weird, isn't it?